0: The scripture reading is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. Let's hear the word of the Lord. grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, Let's go ahead and, uh, and pray together. We'll ask God to bless our time as we, as we look at his word together. Let's pray. Father, you know the needs of our hearts this morning. You know the ways in which we come to you uh, distracted and burdened by many things. Uh, You know the ways that we could potentially mishear your word this morning. Uh, You know the places of our hearts that need to uh, believe the gospel more. You know the ways that we need to see Jesus more clearly this morning. And to understand more of what he has done for us and what he's doing in our midst now. You know the uh, strange relationships that we're in the middle of. Those that we've grown cynical to and pessimistic uh, towards any sort of reconciliation. And you know the glory uh, that, that we experience in other relationships now. And we, uh, we thank you that this is true. And we pray that you would send your spirit this morning to work alongside Your Word, that we would be changed. We need to, to know Jesus more. He's the one from whom we need to hear. And so we ask together that uh, He would be present among us by His Spirit and that we would know Him. And we thank You that You promised to do this and that uh, You delight to do this. We pray You would this morning. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Uh, If you've been with us this fall, you'll know that we're in the midst of a series called Being the Body of Christ. We're asking this question, what does it mean to be the church? What does Jesus intend for us as the church? And we've we've broken it up into these three categories. The the first we called Reaching Up, uh, which were those first five sermons that Darwin covered that dealt mainly with corporate worship, our life with God. We're now in the section called Reaching In the focus there is our life together as a community. Uh, this is the second of four sermons we'll do on that topic. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up next month uh, with the series on reaching in, which or reaching out rather, which is our life in the world. So we'll continue this morning with this, uh, this portion of reaching in. And what I want to look at this morning is our conflicting desires towards community. Here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, you and I all have this rich desire for community, this desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and to be, to be a part of of uh, some sort of united purpose together. Uh, David Brooks, a few years back, wrote a column about this in the New York Times, and he talked about how that's the purpose that college sports uh, fulfill for us now. Here's what he says. In a segmented society... Big-time college sports are one of the few avenues for large-scale communal participation. Mass college sports cross class lines. They induce large numbers of people in a region to stop at the same time and share common emotional experiences. Now, some of you college football fans know this, right? And if you're a TCU fan, you're feeling the common emotional experience of some sadness today and probably some frustration at what could have been or maybe should have been yesterday right uh the point is that we all have this desire to be a part of something bigger and to be a part of this greater purpose that extends beyond ourselves so there's this part of us that, that that's real uh that this desire and longing that's present there because we are made for that sort of community This is what Darwin talked about a couple weeks ago, that we've been made in the image of a God who is relationship. And so what that means is that those desires that we have are good desires. Those are longings that God has given to us. So when you sense that, it's not only a natural longing, it's actually a God-like longing to be in community with other people. So we have that going on the one hand, On the other hand, though, we have this deep sense of skepticism, of fear, and of some trepidation sometimes to actually be involved with people in substantial ways. Um, We recognize that these relationships that we long for, they don't come easily, right? That oftentimes they're inconvenient, they're difficult, they're painful, and you can start wondering, is this actually even worth it? Is it worth it to open myself up to this sort of pain in order to be in a community with people involved in substantial ways. Um, a, few year, a few years back, uh, an author named Anne Rice, you might be familiar with her, she wrote Interview with the Vampire and all those other vampire novels. This was like pre-zombies, so when vampires were kind of the thing. Um, and what happened with Anne Rice is that she became a Christian and she wrote a, an account of her, her coming to faith. And so she was kind of known as this, uh, this author who was a Christian, and she became prominent in that way. A few years back, though, she disavowed the faith. Or more, more specifically, she said she, quote, quit Christianity. And here, here's what she did. She actually did it by Facebook, which is interesting in and of itself. So there's this article that was written about her quitting Christianity, and here's what this article said. Rice said she remains, quote, committed to Christ but no longer able to abide by the quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group known as his followers. So she's saying, I'm committed to Jesus. I just can't stand the people that are with him. I love the church, I just can't stand the people. Um, And and while I'm guessing you probably don't feel that to the same degree, otherwise you wouldn't be here this morning, Um, I think you probably do know what she's getting at here. You know the sense of struggle that can come in actually getting involved in the lives of a community of people. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. Part of us just... We love the independence that we have. We prize individual achievement and it becomes very easy for us to subtly think that that community and involvement with other people is sort of an optional add-on. Like, if I have time, I'll do that, but that's not really what I have to do. Uh, Others of you have had very painful experiences with people in the past. You've opened yourself up, you've made yourself vulnerable in a way, and you've been taken advantage of. And the prospect of doing that again scares you to death, and it causes you to put up a wall of self-protection to keep people away. So we, we have this, the, this conflicted sort of approach towards community. We want it, but at the same time we want it on our own terms. And we want it but we're deeply skeptical about it. But I think underneath all of that, underneath that conflict that all of us experience, there is this deep longing for real community that is a good longing. Here's the quote I want to give you from Todd Bolzinger that gets at this. Here's what he says. What we really want is to be accepted just as we are and to become all we are meant to be. We want to belong to a community that welcomes us in all our painful brokenness and helps us to be healed and transformed into more than we ever imagined. We all want to be loved and transformed by love. Doesn't that sound incredible? And I would guess that if you're here this morning, whether you are a Christian or not, that is your heart's desire to be a part of a community like that, to, to, to be involved in others' lives and to be unified around something bigger than yourself. The question is, how do we get there? How does that become a reality? How does it become something more than a nice quote in a book that we dream of and long for but never actually experience? The claim of the Bible, the claim of Christianity, and the claim of this passage is that the only way that that sort of deep longing for community and relationship is ever going to be met is through Jesus alone. He's the only one through whom we can actually experience the, the restoration, the redemption, the healing, the forgiveness that is required for us to actually experience this sort of community. And that's exactly what he's done. So the question we'll ask this morning, what does it mean to be the body of Christ? According to this passage, being the body of Christ means experiencing the wholeness of reconciled relationships through the blood of Jesus. This is the place where we experience the wholeness of reconciled relationships through Jesus. So the way I want to frame our time this morning is by asking and answering this question. How does Jesus make us one? How does He make us one? first way we see in this passage is that Jesus makes us one by reconciling us to one another. And you see this in verses 11 through 15. Now, If you're new to Christianity or just here exploring Christianity or maybe aren't that familiar with the Bible, uh, these first few verses are a little weird, right? Uh, this starts a bit oddly. There's this like circumcision, uncircumcision talk, strangers to the covenant of promises. A lot's happening here. Let me try and give some background. The perspective of the Bible particularly the Old Testament, is that there are two groups of people. You have the Jews, on the one hand, who were God's chosen people. These would be the children of Abraham, the ones who had received his covenant promises, and and they were the recipients of this promised blessing. So those are the Israelites, the Jews. And then you had everybody else. They were the Gentiles. Uh, They were the non-Jews. We would have been these non-Jews, and that was the fundamental division in humanity. There were two groups of people. You were either part of God's people or you were not. And this was one of the, 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 the deepest sort of divisions that existed in all of humanity, in fact. But look at the passage here, verses 11 and 12. The Gentiles had these real disadvantages in being separated from the people of God. It says they're separated from the promise of the Messiah. That's what it means by separated from Christ. They're outside this community of Israel. And so because of that, they're strangers to the covenants of promise. The result, Paul says, is that they have no hope and they're without God in the world. That's their condition. And he's saying, remember, this is who you were. You were separate from all of this because you were not a part of Israel. But these aren't just religious differences either. Uh, th- there were these cultural differences between these two groups that were nasty. and This sort of division w- went well beyond just sort of, well, we go to this church over here, and then this group goes over here, or something like that. Listen to what one commentator says about this, this about this, d- this relationship. The Jew had an immense contempt For the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that He had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews, the barrier between them was absolute. Listen to this. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile, it was said, was the equivalent of death. That is strong, strong language. This is a deep, deep divide between these two groups of people. They opposed each other in about every way possible. And if you know the story of the Bible that Israel has forsaken their calling. They were always meant to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. But they've forsaken that, and they've set up these divisions to keep these people out at all costs. And at times, this actually got violent. Um, Maybe a a contemporary example of this, uh, of this kind of hatred and division, would probably be something like the Rwandan genocide from 1994. You've probably seen Hotel Rwanda. Some of you have, I'm sure. That was the story of these two warring tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, who began fighting against one another. It was actually the Hutus who, in a period of months, killed 800,000 Tutsis. Men, women, and children. These two tribes were warring against one another, and they they were battling against one another because of this deep division and hatred that, that divided them in all possible ways. That's the sort of the sort of division that we're talking about here. Notice what Paul says has happened, though. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. And then verses 14 and 15, he says that He has made us both one, that He's created one new man or one new people in place of the two. He's saying that these two groups that were divided and separate have now been brought together such that I'm not even going to describe them as these two groups of people anymore. You are like one man, one person, one people now. This is who you are. This is what Jesus has done. How has He done this? By the blood of Christ. He's done this by His cross. He's done this by becoming peace Himself. Jesus' death on the cross becomes this violent act that brings about peace. And he says specifically here that, that he did it by breaking down this, this dividing wall of hostility. Uh, and, and goes on to say in the next verse that there was this law that was expressed in ordinances and that that has been, has been done away with. And what, what likely is happening there is that the law which was good had been given to the people of Israel, and this was how they were to live in relationship with God. This was the desire of God. But then they took these laws, specifically things like dietary restrictions, the way the Sabbath was going to be observed, and these rites of purification, and they used them to to act superior and keep other people out. It had become this dividing wall, and Jesus now comes, goes to the cross, and becomes the way in which now all people will be made right with God who put their faith in Him. He's made this law of nothing. He's broken down this dividing wall of hostility. What he has done is through his death, he's brought together these two groups of people. So in each of these points, I want to ask this question. What what does this mean for us as a community? What does this mean for our skepticism towards community? What, What does it mean towards our desire towards community? Here's what I think this point points us towards, and it's this. Jesus in this passage confronts our cynicism towards unity in the church. I mean, I, we talk about this so often how, uh, how grateful we are that our church is not divided up in these big, huge, significant ways. That, that, that God in His grace has given us this tremendous amount of unity. And I mean, coming back into this body in the last four months has been beautiful in that way. However, I would guess that if we're honest with ourselves, there are people in this room about whom you think, I could never really get along with him or her. I could never really be close with that person. I could really never be friends with that person in any substantial way because he or she is just too different from me. And maybe that you've actually had some falling out with a person who's in this room right now And the thought of being reconciled to them and actually having some semblance of a relationship with them seems utterly impossible. It doesn't seem like a realistic option at all. If that's you this morning, you need to hear that Jesus has the power to bring about peace in the worst of our relationships. In the worst of our relationships, nobody in the first century would have ever thought for a second that the Jews and Gentiles would end up in the same people together in reconciled relationships. Nobody would have thought that at all. But what the death of Jesus does is he brings together these warring groups of people and he gives unity in the midst of it. How does he do that? He does this because our fundamental unity is not in shared political party it's not in similarity in, uh, in music taste or what the, the sorts of things we like to do in our spare time. It's not in shared ethnicity or race. It's not in being from the same socioeconomic class. What this passage says is that our unity is found in Jesus alone. We are united to the same Savior. So Paul says it this way in Colossians 3. Here there's not Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So you can look at the person next to you and know that regardless of how different that person seems to you, regardless of, of how, how impossible it might seem to actually be in a relationship with them, you should know that if you have trusted Jesus, you and that person have the most significant thing possible in common. You share in Jesus together. You are united to the very same Jesus. Life together in Him transcends all other divisions of our world. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. that should give us hope. So what I want you to think about this morning is, where have you given up hope for restored relationships within this church? Where have you set up maybe some other sort of dividing wall that would keep people from knowing you and from you from knowing people? And how does the death of Jesus confront that? The claim of the gospel is that Jesus makes us one by reconciling us together in one body. But then he also goes on to say that another relationship has to be healed first. Secondly, Jesus makes us one by reconciling us to God in one body. So as as significant, as huge, as great as that division was between the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul goes on to say, there's a relationship that was much worse off than this. It was much more deeply divided. And that relationship is between God and humanity. And that is the problem. All of our relational difficulties all stem from this rebellion against God. This ultimate reason for our relational brokenness is because we have been alienated from God because of our sin. And if you look at the way Paul describes this, he says he uses the word hostile to describe this relationship. So it, to be hostile is not to be just indifferent, it's not to ignore somebody or just to not really care about somebody, it's to have some kind of active hatred towards somebody. And that's the way he describes the natural relationship between God. And humanity. And what this means then is that we were really enemies with God. And that's what Paul says. We're enemies with him. So what sin has done is not just break some sort of rule that God has set up. It is breaking a law, but it's not just that. Sin is actually setting yourself in opposition to God. It's setting up yourself in a relationship with Him that now is one of active hatred towards Him. It might not always feel that way, but that's the natural inclination that we have. And as we turn our backs on God, it then wreaks havoc in our relationships as well. Everything else starts to come unraveled. But that's what this passage is all about. What it's about is that, that the gospel actually brings healing in this relationship, that God has done something about this as well. It says He's reconciled us to Himself. And if you see here, this reconciliation comes at a huge cost. God doesn't brush this aside. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't act as though it's not that big of a deal. What He does, says verse 16, is He kills this hostility that existed between you and God. He kills this hostility by killing His Son. And it results in peace. This reconciliation that God has purchased actually cost Jesus His life. And verse 17 says that this is not just a cold reconciliation, that's some kind of legal issue that's been dealt with exclusively. He says in verse 17 that there is now peace. There is relational wholeness. You have been reconciled to God. So that in verse 18, He can say that we now share God as our Father. We become His children. And so what God has said is, I'm going to make my enemies part of my family. And this is at the heart of God's redeeming work. This is what God has done to bring you back to Himself. And it's what's essential for us to be in restored relationship with one another. This is what God has done in Jesus. So what does this mean for our struggle with unity? I think what this does is that it, it, it bumps up against sort of the uh, idealism that we can have towards our life together. How so? What do I mean by that? Um, I can think of this community that I long to be a part of, and the, the, the ideal that I have in mind is one that's free of conflict, it's easy, everybody looks a lot like me, um, everybody has the same likes and dislikes. And so it's really easy to think that that is really what we're going for, that that's the picture of a healthy community. The problem is that that's not what the church is in reality. That's not what the church is. Think back to the Jews and Gentiles. They, they, they have been these two warring people groups for years and years and years. And then one day, somebody professes faith in Jesus and enters into this body. And then a Jew does the same thing, and they are now a part of the same body, the same group of people, about whom a few days earlier you were thinking, "This is only this person's only good for the fuels of fi- fuels of hell." This person is nothing better than a dog, and now we're in the same body together. That's why much of the Old Test or the New Testament actually addresses this divide, trying to to address the issues of Jews and Gentiles living together in the same body that is a greater picture of the sort of uh, the community that we are are a part of. And this sort of reconciliation is costly. This is something that that is difficult, and it's what Jesus' reconciling work shows us. That that to be a community of, of friends, to be a community of love, is actually going to be costly, and it's going to require a lot of us. There will be sacrifice involved. And our danger is that when we bring these idealistic notions of community and unity to the church and those expectations aren't met, then we become disillusioned and we become despising towards those around us. Bonhoeffer says that we actually end up uh, accusing God in the end because he didn't give us the group of people that we wanted to be with. The point is that there, there is no Perfect church. There's no perfect small group. There's no perfect relationship. Uh, We might get close to perfect music here, uh, but all of these require work. And the way this, uh, the same article about Anne Rice describes this, so she says, to join a community of human beings is to court disillusionment, to risk seeing your dreams of perfect people and perfect peace shattered by the reality that Rice described: people who are quarrelsome, hostile. Disputatious and deservedly infamous. So, what we need to do, what this passage would call us to, is to turn from those idealistic notions of community and actually embrace the community that we're a part of. How do we do that? Well, it comes by rec- recognizing this work that Jesus has done on our behalf. He's the one who's made us one, He's the one who's reconciled us to God, which then enables us to be reconciled to one another. But it's not just that. It's our third point. Jesus makes us one by indwelling us by His Holy Spirit. Now, there are all sorts of things we could say about these verses. These are rich, rich verses, 19 through 22. But what I want you to see is that Jesus actually makes it possible for us to grow in our love and community with one another by giving us His Spirit. He makes it possible for us to experience real growth, to push through that cynicism, to forsake that idealism, and to actually grow in our love and unity with one another. Because what he says in these verses is that the church is actually the place where we experience God's presence like no other. The church is the place where that happens. Look at verse 19. He uses this building imagery and says that we're unified in one building where Jesus is the cornerstone. This would be the one on whom the whole structure depends. It would set the trajectory of the building. And without that, the entire thing would collapse. Jesus is the builder and the foundation of this. And it's not just any building that he's talking about here. He's using this temple language. And when we think of temple, it's easy to think of sort of a church building, an Old Testament church building, It's so much more than that, according to the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks of the temple as this place where God's special presence dwelt. It was the place where heaven and earth would intersect. And so it was the place to go to experience God's presence in a way that you could not experience it anywhere else. So what does that mean for us? It means that the place where God will nourish your faith and strengthen us in our love for one another is right here in the church. This is the place where He gives us His Spirit. And in that sense, we need one another. We need the church because this is the place where His gracious presence is found. This is the place, according to verse 22, where God dwells with us by His Spirit. He gives us His very presence here. And it's that Spirit, that Spirit of Jesus, that actually nourishes this love for one another. It continues to remind us of the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus for the ways that we've wronged one another and the ways that we're afraid of one another. It continues to to, to point us back to this unity for which Jesus has died. This is the Spirit that is ours here. And and, and so the result is that by the the enabling work of the Spirit in our midst, you can actually begin giving of your time to to somebody else. You can give of yourself emotionally. You can enter into another person's suffering and help bear her burden because this is how Jesus has loved you. And you taste this in community with one another by the power of the Spirit. What does this mean practically for us? How specifically... Does the Spirit do this? Let me just point out two ways as we wrap up. One is through prayer. Um, Paul will go on in chapter 3 of Ephesians to pray that the church together would have the strength to comprehend the love of God. Uh, in John 17, we have this prayer of, of Jesus that, that, who prays that, that we would all be one just as the Father is in me and I in Him. Jesus prays for us and He invites us to plead with Him to continue to make us one. So we do this by prayer. The Spirit gives Himself to us through prayer. The second way that I want to highlight, the way in which we receive the Spirit, is right here at this table. We receive the Spirit through this table. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What this meal does is it not only shows forth our unity as we come forward together and eat of this loaf and have this one cup, but it also advances, furthers our unity as well. Because Jesus by His Spirit is present with us here and He is committed to, to helping us and enabling us to show forth this unity that he has died for. This is what this meal does for us. Let me return and close with Anne Rice. This unity and community in the church that she describes and is disillusioned with is obviously a whole lot different than what she uh, she wanted, what she desired. But what I want to say here is that it is also much more glorious. And this is the way this article ends says real community is trickier you cannot present only the side of yourself that you want others to see you cannot log off as soon as your online chat partner begins to irritate you you're stuck there in your pew your neighborhood your family or your marriage and forced to work through your difficulties you're forced to grow to persevere past your grudges and to recognize that the very faults and ill motives that you resent in others often lurk hidden in your own heart too In faith, as in the rest of life, some of the hardest lessons and greatest rewards come from struggling alongside other broken human beings whose rough edges help you recognize and soften your own. This is what the church should be. A community that is one because Jesus has died to make us one and we have this ultimate union in Him. And He's given us His Spirit that we would grow in that unity and manifest that unity to the world. That's what He's called us to. That this would be the place where we experience this richness of relationships, where we experience this richness of Jesus Himself in and through this body. Let me pray for us and ask that God would bring this about in us. Our Father in Heaven, thank You that You have made peace by the blood of Your cross, that You have drawn us back to Yourself that You've forgiven us our sins through the atoning death of Jesus and that by His resurrection now we experience the fullness of His Spirit that unites us to one another and enables us to continue to grow in our love for one another. And we pray that You would do that in our midst, that we would recognize our inability to do this apart from Your gracious work in us. And so we pray that You would do that for Your glory and for our good. Amen.